Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Marcus, and um, uh, Lauren asks me to, uh, and gives me the opportunity to preach once in a while, and it's a great privilege because I get to study the Word and get to um, get familiar with, with the passage, and, and it's a teaching thing for, for all of us. I, I learn through this, and I hope that um, we can all learn together through this. Um, I just want to open with a quick word of prayer. Lord, I just want to invite you, invite your presence into this building, Lord, that, that um, we're just blessed to have. It's good to be in your community. It's good to be with brothers and sisters and believers, Lord, and to delve into your word together, Lord. I just pray that you'll bless these words, that they wouldn't be my words. Um, Lord, open our eyes and our ears and help us to understand and to, to humbly accept what you would have us learn this morning. I pray this in your name. Amen. Um, Noah, thank you for those songs. It's almost like he had my sermon notes. Uh, those are great songs. Not through me, but through Christ in me. That's a message that's going to come out today. Um, so, I don't want to go back and preach through everything that we've preached through already, because um, as you know, if you've been following along, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark. And um, today's passage is Mark... Uh, chapter 14, verses 66 to 72. We're not going to read that quite yet. I'm just going to set it up a little bit here. Um, if you've been following along, so Jesus had the Last Supper. He had the supper with his disciples. And then he dips into the bowl. If you remember with Judas' betrayal, he dips into the bowl. And I can just imagine Jesus looking around and saying, whoever dips in the bowl here will betray me tonight. And he must have locked eyes with Judas and then he says to Judas, or he says generally, he said, it would have been better for him had he not been born. So that indicates a pretty serious, grievous sin. To say, betraying Jesus, it's better that Judas had not been born. After the Last Supper, of course, uh, they retreat. They go to the Mount of Olives to pray. And Jesus declares to his disciples that all will fall away. He quotes from Zechariah 13, where he says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And uh, of course, Peter pipes up. Peter's always the kind of guy who pipes up first. He says, oh, yep, um, you know, all the others might fall away, but not me because, you know, I'm Peter. Somehow Peter feels like he's above the fray. He's a little bit better than everyone else. But we're about to find out that that's not true. Jesus predicts that by the time the rooster has crowed twice, Peter will have denied Jesus three times. You know, if you're a, a teacher or a leader, sometimes you've got your favorites. And I, I wonder if Jesus had his favorites among the disciples. If you had to guess, if you were watching a movie, right, or you're watching the gospel here as a movie and somebody hit the pause button because you had to go get some popcorn and somebody said, you know, Here's a spoiler alert. One of these disciples is going to betray Jesus in the end. Who do you think it's going to be, right? You would probably guess a whole bunch of other disciples, but you probably wouldn't guess that it would be Peter. Peter was the first disciple that Jesus picked. And I'm sure Peter kind of wore that as a little bit of a badge of honor. I'm the first one. Jesus named Peter the rock. He said, on you I will build my church. That must have felt good. No one's ever called me the rock before. 
I wonder if that built up Peter's ego a little bit, his, his pride a little bit. But Peter was also a star student. If you remember back some months ago, it seems like quite a while ago, um, we were in Mark chapter 8, and Jesus was trying to find out, he, Jesus had declared that he was the Messiah, and he was trying to find out, you know, what are people, are, is the message catching on? He said, what do people say that I am? And then he said to his disciples and said, who do you say that I am? And Peter, again being the star pupil, he says, you are the Christ. So Peter was getting the message, and he declared Jesus as the Christ, the, the, the promised Messiah. Right after that episode, then Jesus, rather disappointingly, I think, to the disciples, says, well, you know, the kingdom that I'm preparing is not going to be an earthly kingdom with great majesty and wealth and, and, and popularity. Jesus says, I must suffer and I must die. And then, and then Peter, being who he is, says, no, I'm not going to let this happen. Peter rebukes Jesus. Like, he had just declared that Jesus is the promised Messiah come from God, and then Peter finds that it's his job now to go and tell Jesus how it's really going to be. And Jesus turns the tables and he, sa- and he rebukes Peter, and he says, no, Peter, you get behind me, Satan. And that's a rather sharp rebuke, and that must have cut Peter to the heart. You know, I think Peter was the kind of guy, as I study his character a bit, he's kind of like one of these, like he's made of particularly hard steel, right? And they say that iron sharpens iron, and it just seems like Jesus, like a blacksmith here, he's putting him through the fire, he's pounding him, he's sharpening him, he's making him into a particularly effective tool. Sometimes it seems like he's a little tough on him, but this is his job, is to make Peter into a, into a good disciple. Peter's also interesting sometimes. I feel like he's like a young boy. Like those of you who've got you know, young, young boys, your young grandchildren, right? Um, they often sort of say things before they think about it, or sometimes they act before they thought about it. You know, they'll throw a snowball without thinking about the consequence of it, or they'll ride their bike off a jump and they won't think about the consequence. And Peter's that kind of guy. He just sort of jumps at an opportunity but he's not really thinking ahead. Remember when Jesus uh, walked on the water, the disciples were out at night on the boat, and there was a storm, and they saw Jesus. And, and Peter's like, hey, Lord, to pick me, I'm, you know, and, and, and he, wasn't, he was just so full of passion, he was always the first one to go. He wanted to walk on the water. He had faith that Jesus would carry him. He's the first one. Later, of course, through the story here, Jesus gets arrested in the garden. It's nighttime. There's the priests coming with their soldiers and their guards. They're coming to arrest Jesus. Peter's the first one to pull out his sword like, <laughs> what's Peter going to do with that little sword against an army of soldiers, right? But he's, he's just full of passion and excitement. And, uh, you know, I, th- I thought about this. I thought, this could have ended poorly for Peter, but he probably was so clumsy with his sword, because we knew he cut off that servant's ear, right? Like, I don't think Peter intended to cut that ear off. I think he was just sort of clumsily, you know, wielding his sword. They probably just figured, never mind this guy. He doesn't know what he's doing, right? Focus on Jesus. But again, here's Peter kind of acting in his characteristic way. At the Last Supper, Peter boldly declared to Jesus, he said, if all the others desert you, if they all leave, I will not. Right? He was a bold, courageous man, according to to, to one way of looking at it. And so, if Jesus would have 
been in the habit of grading his students or his disciples, Peter might have got straight A's. Peter was in the inner circle. You know when uh, Jesus went up to, um, to the mount for the transfiguration or for the, up to the Mount of Olives to pray? He took Peter along, along with two other disciples. Like he, Peter was on part of that inner circle. So last week, um, we heard that after Jesus was arrested, Jesus was taken to the high priest's house. And um, there was a, a mock trial at night. Lauren was talking about this, right? It was a, an illegal trial. It was happening at night. And this was at the high priest's house. This wasn't like going to the pastor's house, right? This would have probably been a compound, a large compound with an inner uh, courtyard and a, and a gate at the door. and this was full of the enemy. This was full of the, the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. These are the guys that have been after Jesus. They've been trying to put an end to him. They've been trying to erase him off the face of the earth. And um, Peter manages to sneak in there, right? Again, this is sort of a characteristic move of Peter. Um, I think of some, some action-adventure movies that we've all seen, you know, Indiana Jones or something like that. Despite the presence of the enemy in there, he sneaks between the shadows and hides behind boxes and things like that, and he goes in there. And so I'm thinking, Peter, what are you doing going in there? There's the trial of Jesus who's being condemned to death, and you're in there at great peril to yourself. Um, I just want to pause here for a moment. You know, this, this, this story is actually, um, if we look over at John 18, um, you can read this whole story again from a different perspective. You can also read it in Matthew 26 or in Luke 22, right? So we call these the synoptic gospels, like they're all looking at the same story together. Um, one little clue that we get from John 18 is that there's another disciple who was known to the high priest who followed Jesus, and that other disciple seems to have uh, a, bit of a, a bit of an in with the high priest, and he uh, was able to get Peter into the courtyard. It's thought that that unnamed disciple was John, because one of the ways that the gospel writers would often reference themselves in the story that they were writing is that they would sort of reference an unnamed disciple, and that was kind of a, a literary practice in that day. Um, so, John might have been in there, but we don't know much about what happened to John. So, yeah, so Peter goes into this courtyard. He's sitting there by himself <coughs> around the fire. And um, so let's read the passage for today, which we're finally getting to, which is Mark 16. Sorry, Mark 14. And verse 66. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by, and she saw Peter warming himself, and she looked closely at him. You were also with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and he went out into the entryway. When the servant, servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near to Peter said, Surely you're one of them, for you're a Galilean. He began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. 
and immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and he wept. So Peter's in here, and um, he gets recognized. You know, the first time he gets, he gets challenged, um, are you one of these guys that's been hanging out with Jesus? He doesn't just say no, but he strongly denies it. He's, he's firm about it. He says, I neither know or understand what you're talking about. That phrase, that specific phrase, was actually kind of something used in, in court. It was kind of a legal phrase, like we might say in, in modern days, we might say, you know, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me God. That was his way of saying, absolutely not. Don't know this. So, after he's denied Jesus the first time, he moves away. He gets a little bit smarter. He's, he, he had been huddling around this fire at night. It was late at night. Everyone's trying to warm themselves. So he moves away, and it says here he goes over to the gate or, or to the entryway. Maybe he's looking for some shadows. But the rooster crows. And that should have set a light bulb off in Peter's head, right? Rooster? Hmm. Someone mentioned this before. But no, not to Peter. Again, about an hour later, we're told, the servant girl, this time, she brings a few other people around. She says, hey guys, isn't this, isn't, wasn't he over there with, with, with Jesus? Wasn't he together there? And again, Peter denies it. Finally, there's a group of them that come around and you can just sort of imagine them gathering around saying, you know, something about you. It's your accent. You're Galilean. That's it. Your accent gave you away. You're not from around here. You were with Jesus. Surely you were one of them, since you're a Galilean, it says. This time, Peter's had enough. He ramps it up. It says here that he swears. Now, you know, he might have sworn. I don't know. You know, like swearing in a blue streak trucker kind of swearing. Um, but I don't think that's kind of the swearing it was. I think it was like people do when they call curses and paw themselves. So help me God if what I say is not true. I swear on my grandmother's grave. That kind of a swearing. He strongly, strongly refutes the fact that he knows Jesus. And immediately as these words have escaped his mouth, the rooster crows a second time. right? And then finally that light bulb in his head goes on and he breaks down and he weeps. Um, if you still got your finger in, in uh, John's Gospel, there's an interesting thing that happens here. So if we read Mark, we read about the trial of Jesus. And then there's kind of a paragraph or whatever section ends. And then we read about the, the so-called quote-unquote trial of Peter, right? Like it's happening next. If you look in John, uh, you get the sense that both of these trials are happening at the same time. You've got Jesus over here. He's in the high priest's house. He's probably up on the second floor somewhere. He's surrounded by this crowd of very aggressive Sanhedrin. They've been after him for a long time. They're questioning him pointing fingers at him. What's going on? And Jesus doesn't defend himself. He, he confesses that he, he is who he is. In fact, Jesus answers getting further into trouble. Down below in the courtyard, at the same time, approximately, is Peter sitting around this fire and he gets accused. I'll put that in quotation marks. He gets questioned by the servant girl hey, aren't you one of them? 
and Peter denies it. Both of these events are happening simultaneously. Peter denies. Jesus confesses. He doesn't defend himself. And just as it happens at the end of, at the end of these events, Peter denies Jesus. The rooster crows. And Jesus has completed his trial and his eyes lock with Jesus as we learn in the Gospel of John. And, and Peter weeps. I wonder what kind of a look that would have been. We'll talk a bit more about that later. So this all brings to the question of, you know, I just built up Peter like he's the star student. He's such, he's like the disciple of disciples. I mean, he's the rock. He, you know, he can't fail. And here we see a miserable failure. Not just once, but three times. How is it that the rock, the star student, Peter, falls into sin like this? How is it that he, he breaks under pressure? What lessons can we learn from that? Could it have been his pride that caused him to fail? So some observations about the circumstances that Peter finds himself in where he, he falls into the sin. First one is isolation. You know, uh, Peter leaves the other disciples. We're told that they all scattered when Jesus got arrested. And now he's alone. He's in this sort of viper's den surrounded by enemies. He's in way over his head. He doesn't have anyone to pray for him, to support him, to hold him accountable. And it's like us, right? When we're away from our brothers and sisters, we're alone. It's like you guys have heard that analogy of taking the coal out of the fire and it starts to cool off, right? We need the presence of others. And it's easy for us to find ourselves in circumstances beyond our control, right? Maybe it's a, a, a guy's fishing trip, guys from work, right? And you go away and you're the only believer there. And there's crude jokes around the, told around the campfire, right? That's a tough spot to be in. It's a lot harder to stand up for your faith in that situation. Maybe you're out with the ladies, you know, for a lunch and everyone starts gossiping, right? And you're alone. You feel like you're the only one in that situation. It's a lot harder to stand up for your faith when you're alone, right? The students with friends from school, there's a party or just hanging out somewhere, right? And you're the only believer. When we're isolated, we're a lot more prone to sin and temptation. The other observation here is lack of prayer. You know, before all this happened, Jesus knows his time has come. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he knows there's difficult times ahead of him. And Jesus being fully man and fully God, the man side of him was kind of like, boy, I sure don't want to do this. If there is a way out, I would sure like to have it. And Jesus knows that his strength would come not from his own will, but through prayer. And so Jesus takes the time, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he takes the time to pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John. Right Again, there's Peter in the center group, and he told them to keep watch. <laughs> but they fell asleep because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The Gospel of Matthew tells us specifically that Jesus addressed Peter specifically, and he said, watch and pray so that you will not enter into temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. It's interesting here that Jesus, again, specifically, it's like he's looking at Peter. He's going, this is for you, my friend. But again, Peter, his flesh overcomes him. It's late at night. He's tired. He falls asleep. He didn't take the time to pray. 
when we pray, it shifts our focus from ourselves to the Lord. We admit that it's not about us, it's about Him. We admit our weakness when we pray, and we can cast our cares and, and put our reliance in Him. When we pray, it redirects our focus from, from the present, from the now, from earthly things to eternal things, to heavenly things. It shifts our focus. shifts our focus to things that have everlasting consequence. When we pray, we can invite the Holy Spirit to strengthen us, to give us the words to say, to give us wisdom through difficult situations. So when we don't pray, and we don't pray regularly, we're more prone to sin and, and more prone to temptation. Fatigue. Now this one's probably an obvious one, right? So it's late at night. He's probably hungry. I'd be hungry at you know two or three in the morning. It's cold. He's tired. It's been an emotionally stressful and difficult day. And Peter here is sitting around this fire in the wee hours of the morning. You know, the enemy is always on the prowl, looking for an opportunity to take us down, and he knows when we're weak. Uh, in 1 Peter 5, verses 8, which is interesting, because that's written by Peter later in his life, reflecting back on his earlier life, earlier life, he warns us. 1 Peter 5, verse 8 says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. If you know anything about lions, I've watched a bit of National Geographic, right? They tend to not chase their prey and chase them. They look for an opportunity. They wait in hiding, and they look for an opportunity to pounce. And especially when someone is weak and tired and they're down. So we need to be wise and know that when we're at our weakest moment, we're also the most vulnerable to temptation. And the enemy is, is ready to strike. Another thing is not fleeing sin. We don't know exactly Peter's motivations for getting himself into this situation. But the first time that rooster crowed, and Peter knew he denied Jesus the first time. Like he would have he known, I think. Because when you sin, you're convicted as a believer. And Peter certainly was a believer. And that rooster should have given him an early warning that uh, he had betrayed Jesus. And he should have got himself out of that situation. But he didn't. You know, when we don't flee sin, when we allow ourselves to, to meander, to kind of wander into sin, just, just, just for a little bit, just for a little time, just, just once maybe, just a little tiny bit, right? We get into sin and we need to flee sin. Um, we also have the story from, from uh, uh, Joseph. You remember early on the story of Joseph when Potiphar's wife was trying to seduce him. He didn't sit around and said, well, it's nice to have the attention kind of for once and she is kind of pretty and I'll see how this turned out. No, he fled. He left his coat behind and he ran away. And that's what we need to do when we have the early warning signs of sin and of temptation. Peter did not heed the warning. Jesus had previously, near the end of uh, their last supper, the Passover supper, he said to him, and uh, this is the passage that Brad read earlier. Now he said, and depending on what translation you have, it said, Satan has, has asked to sift you, plural, right, like flour, but I will pray for you, Simon, that you will not fail, right? So Jesus addresses all the disciples, but he says, you, Simon, I'm going to pray for you that will not fail. 
Sifting, of course, was a process by like separating the wheat from the chaff. They would have understood that. You know, you shake the grain and all the, the chaff blows away and the wheat stays behind. It's a, it's a process of separating the good from the bad. It's an allegory of, of a, there's a test coming. And here's Jesus' warning to Peter. There is a test coming where we're going to determine the good from the bad, the true from the false. And he said, um, you know, keep watch and pray and stay alert. Sometimes we have a warning and we need to heed those warnings. We're prone to sin when we slack off and we're carefree about temptation, right? Keeping watch and staying alert means being aware that the enemy is on the prowl. We're in a spiritual war, right? Um, spiritual warfare is real. And when we forget that, when we kind of get lackadaisical about it, we're more prone to sin and temptation. Peter was blindsided. Like I said before, like an enemy, the, uh, like a lion, the enemy will stalk us. He looks for an opportune time to, to drag us into sin. Peter thought maybe he could hide out there and sort of get away with whatever his plan was. Maybe he didn't have a plan. You know, we're not told what his plan was. But we know the devil had a plan. And the devil had a plan to tempt Peter and to take him down and to take him down at an opportune time. He was put on the spot. He didn't have a, a much advanced warning. That question came from that servant girl. That question came from those people asking him. And he was put on the spot and he wasn't ready. And again, we need to know that we can be blindsided any time, right? You're in a meeting at work, a topic comes up. Or you're with the guys in the locker room. Or you're in any situation and a topic com comes up. And our faith can be put to the test. Overarching all of this, I think there's, you know, we had this whole list here, but I think the one common denominator that all these things have is that Peter was overconfident and he was proud. He was unprepared because he decided to do whatever he was going to do on his own strength, on his own resolve, because of course, he's Peter and he's the first one that was chosen. He's the rock and he's the Lord's preeminent disciple. He was, he thought he was unshakable and, un, and invincible. And you know, just like when he whipped out that sword in the garden, uh, he must have thought, well, I'm, you know, no matter, the, no matter how the, the, the odds play out here, I can do this because, I, you know, because I'm Peter. He relied on his own strength. When we're confident and when we rely too much on our own strength, it really um, limits our ability to, to withstand a test of our faith. Do we rely on our own strength or do we rely on God's strength, right? Do we daily ask Him to lead us not into temptation and to strengthen us, to be faithful to Him. So, you know, it's good to be confident. And where does confidence turn into like overconfidence and where does it turn into pride? Where's that line? Well, I'm not going to tell you where the line is, but um, we can become, as believers, we can become complacent in our faith. You know, sometimes we sort of think of ourselves maybe as believers, like we're, we have a ranking like Boy Scouts, you know, you've got the beginners and the medium and the, the, the further up, right? We might think of ourselves as, as advanced in our faith or have a high position in our faith because we've been serving in the church in a certain capacity um, or, we, you know, we've been leading youth group or we've been doing Sunday school or maybe you've been in, in church for decades. You've been a believer for decades Maybe you're born in the church like little Henry Breck. You're literally, I mean, I don't think he was literally born in the church, but you know what? Like you've been going to church all your life 
and somehow you think that that puts you in a you know in a higher spot like you're more resistant to temptation you think of yourself as a super christian you're somehow a little bit more infallible than that that person over there that's kind of new and doesn't quite fit into the church yet the new believer no you know you think of yourself as a as a greater level again when we rely on our own strength and our own experience and our toughness and our abilities our own resolve right just like peter might have that gets us into trouble but you know what friends before god we're all on the same playing field we're all equal sinners we're all saved by grace and as it says in Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 9, you've heard this verse before. We're all saved by grace, not by works, not by what any of us have done, so that no one can boast, right? None of us is above the other. Before God's holy, perfect throne, we are all the same. We're all either sinners in Christ or sinners apart from Christ. None of us is more deserving of God's forgiveness than the other. And that's something we have to remember. The only, the only way that we can be restored to Him is because of His mercy to each of us, not because of anything that we have done. Um, I came across this interesting um, kind of an exploration of how, uh, how we find ourselves in sin. And this was a, a, a pastor and theologian named James Philip. Um, I think he was from England. And so he kind of explored this. And he he um, read the verse from Isaiah 53, verse 6. And again, uh, this might be a, a passage that's familiar to most of you. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Right? That's a bit of a different translation, but I, I chose that one because it, it, it's, it's very distinct. It talks about the sheep that stray away, and then it talks about we have left God's paths to follow our own. And so what James Philip was talking about is he said that sin is almost always a mix of there's opportunity and there's willingness. There's an opportunity that comes up or there's an intentionality to it. Uh, as far as the sheep goes, you might see a sheep sort of wandering away as it's following the juiciest grasses. It's just kind of going where things are the best, right? That's following the opportunity. And then you might have the sheep sometime later going... I was good over there. I'm going to the shepherd told me to stay over here, but I'm that was I'm following that, right? So that's the distinction between falling into an opportunity and willingness willing willfully pursuing the temptation and the sin. We go astray when we're like wayward sheep, when we're not watching and praying as it says in the scripture. Other times we might willingly pursue a path to temptation. And the more we willingly pursue that path to temptation, the more it becomes about being willful and the less it becomes about being wayward. Okay, it becomes more willful the more we sin, less about wayward. It becomes less of, a, less, of an, less of an oopsie, less of an opportunity, and more of intentionality. And as we sin more, it becomes increasingly rebellious and deliberate and willful, and it becomes less about being wayward. What we need to do is recognize that and repent of our sin before it becomes willful, right? If we've, if we've strayed into an opportunity by being wayward, we need to repent of that sin before it becomes willful and habitual. You know, Peter found himself, he might have strayed into the situation, but he had his first chance, right? When we sin the first time, 
Sometimes it makes sinning the second or the third time easier. We've sort of broken that ice. Peter should have recognized that and emboldened him to repeat his sin twice over and even stronger the second time or the third time. So it's kind of a sad story of failure. You know, you've got this guy who's a star student and you might be despairing and going, well, if Peter is such a good disciple, he's had all these years with Jesus and his training. He's been, I mean, if anyone should stand strong, especially someone like Peter with his strong personality, how does God expect me? I'm just a a regular Joe or a regular Jane. How does God expect me to stand under pressure? But the good news is Christ intercedes for us. Uh, It says in Romans 8, 8, verse 34, that Christ intercedes for us. Interceding is praying. It's not praying for ourselves, but it's praying on behalf of someone else. And Jesus uh, says in Luke 22, verse 32, again, I've dropped off. Here I am. Uh, It's one of the other um, alternate accounts of the story, right? When Jesus says to Peter, uh, Satan has asked to sift you. And then Jesus says, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith might not fail. Jesus prays for us. He doesn't relish in our, he doesn't relish in our failures and our weaknesses. Interestingly, this is a little bit aside, but I think it's relevant. You'll excuse me for jumping around through all the different Gospels, but um, when I read this account in John chapter 17, and you can read this later if you want. We won't have time to go through it. Um, Jesus prays one of his longest prayers recorded. And he prays a little bit about himself that he will be strengthened as he prepares for this coming ordeal. But then he spends a lot of time praying for his disciples. And he spends a lot of time praying for other believers, including us. Jesus cares about us, right? He spends time praying and he intercedes on our behalf that we might not fall into temptation. Jesus has gone before us. uh, Being fully God, but also being fully man, he knows what temptation is like, right? He doesn't look at it from a high point and say, well, you know, I can do this and I expect you to do better. He has a high priest, as it says in Hebrews 4, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things just as we are, yet without sin. Right? Jesus understands. He's been there before us. He knows what we have to deal with. He has led a sinless and perfect life. He understands. He's been there. Christ doesn't stand from far off, kind of with his arms crossed and watch us trip and, and, and you know, fall and struggle. He doesn't scoff at our weakness. He's, he's, he's sympathetic to us. He yearns for us to grow in his likeness, just like he did with Peter. He's sympathetic to us and he wants us to grow in his likeness and he prays for us on behalf of the Father. Really the bottom line is Jesus wants us to learn increasingly to rely on him, not to rely on ourselves and our own strength and our own experience and our own toughness or whatever we think we might have, right? Our, our length of time as a believer. He doesn't want us to rely on all those things. He wants us to daily rely on him and to put our strength in him. So when we get near the end of the story, we know there's, there's good news. We're told that as the rooster crowed the second time, 
Peter was immediately convicted and he broke down in tears. And like I mentioned earlier in the Gospel of John, at the high priest's house, right? there's this perfect intersection of three events. Peter denies Jesus. The rooster crows. And Jesus, just having finished his trial with the high priests, and he's probably been beaten. He's probably been spat on. I can imagine him with blood running down his nose and a cut in his forehead. Everyone's tired, and he's bound with his hands behind his back, and they're leading him out through to the next um, to, the, to his next trial. And his eyes lock with Peter. Just for a moment, their eyes lock, just as Peter has denied Jesus and the rooster crows. <laughs> I want to see that look. It's like, you know, you see the Mona Lisa and she's got this unique look in her eyes and everyone's trying to decipher that look. I want to see that look in Jesus' eyes as he sees Peter as their eyes lock. What kind of glance would that have been? Do you think it was a glance of, <laughs> I told you so, sucker, you failed? I don't think so. Do you think it was an angry glance? Like, how could you? Peter, I've trained you for all these years. How could you deny me? I don't think it was a glance like that. Do you think it was a glance of despair? Like, Peter, I've given up. I thought we were, you know, reached to a point here and Peter, you failed. Do you think it was a glance like that? I don't think so. I think it was a glance of Sadness and heartbreak, because when we sin, it pierces the heart of Jesus. It pierces His hands and it pierces His heart. It pierces the Lord's heart. But I think it was also a look of compassion and a look of hope and a look of love. Because Jesus has hope for us, right? He's got compassion for us. And He doesn't give up on us, no, no matter how dark or how numerous our sins are. Peter, though he had sinned, his immediate response was to be remorseful and regretful and he was humbled and he repented. He broke down and he repented. And Jesus takes us back no matter how grievous our sin is. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It says in uh, 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, I'll read it again. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He makes us perfect again. Jesus wants us to rely on him in dwelling in us and to he wants to make us new. We contrast this with Judas, right? Judas had earlier betrayed Jesus. He had a sinful scheme. He had been planning this all along. He was rebellious. He was deliberate and willful. He pursued his own sin, Judas did, and in the end, it caught up with him. Even though it was regretful, like when you sin, you often regret, and you regret the consequences, but he did not repent, and Judas ended his own life. He ended up reaping the, the wages of sin, which is death. The good news is, right, and we talk about a living hope in this church, there's hope. Peter's sin did not drag him down. It did not define him. It was a dark moment in his life, but it didn't define him. He repented, and of course, as we know, Peter would go on to become one of the leading apostles, one of the leading preachers in the new church, boldly proclaiming the gospel everywhere he went. When Jesus gave him the command to feed my sheep, Peter took that to heart. He was instrumental in founding the early church. 
And of course, like we just read here, you know, Peter would go on to write two epistles, first and second Peter. And when you read those, you realize that Peter's attitude, right? Sometimes you read uh, first and second Peter or Peter one, Peter two. It seems like it was written by somebody else because now he's talking about humility. He's talking about submission. It doesn't sound like Peter, right? But perhaps Peter from this moment learned and he was refined and he was sharpened into an even tougher tool. In Christ, there's hope for each one of us, no matter what our sin is, no matter how, how deep or how long. And the story of Peter, is a, it's a great story because it's, it's a story of how the gospel transforms each of us, right? The gospel is about good news. And God is not done with us. He's doing a good work in each of us and, and he's refining us each day. So don't, don't let your sin get you down, but it's an opportunity for us to grow in him every day. I just want to pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for teaching us lessons that come from your word, that we know there's people that have gone before us, even great heroes in the Bible that we might lift up as, as um, unbreakable, unshakable in their faith. And we know that even they can fail, Lord, and we know that you look kindly upon us. You don't want us to fail, Lord, but when we do, when we trip and when we fall, when we stumble and when we willfully sin, Lord, you reach down and you pick us up because you don't want us to go down that path, Lord. Lord, we repent of our sins and we ask you to forgive us. And Lord, we pray that every day we would be reminded, Lord, that it's not our strength. It's no matter who we are and, and how hard we try and what we might do and what our intentions are, Lord, but it's your strength in us that will guide us to be on the, on the true path. Lord, we pray these things by the power of your name. Amen.